right, thank you very much, Tom, and thank you guys, uh, worship team. That was absolutely wonderful. Um, how's everyone doing out there? Yeah. Right. Me again. Uh, once again, in case you weren't here for announcements, I am Jordan Johnson, <laughs> student ministries director. Sorry, I, I rehearsed it this week, and so I have to say it. Or, so anyways, bear with me. Um, but I am the student ministries director here um, at F FBC, and it is my uh, joy and privilege to be able to bring to you guys today's sermon, um, especially as we are getting closer and closer to being done with the book of Joshua and then moving on into the Lord's Prayer after that. Um, I am very excited about um, what God has shown me in this passage, uh, and so my job today is to share with you guys what makes me excited about this passage, but then also to be able to teach you guys how you can go and see for yourselves uh, as well. So I think that's a great agenda. Do you guys agree with this or not? Or Okay, awesome. So when we get into, we're going to be in the Joshua 23 today, the entire chapter, 16 verses, uh, we can do it. And then, uh, and then we have one more sermon on Joshua next week. Slade's going to bring us to a close. Um, and so we're going to be talking about, we're going to be wrapping up some details, uh, but the same thing, the narrative is still continuing. And so there are many things yet to be seen. And so uh, what we're going to be doing today is we're first, before we do anything else, we're going to be setting a foundation. And then after the foundation, we're going to set up some framing with how we're going to view the, the scripture. And then after that, we're going to spend the rest of our time in Joshua 23, breaking apart the passage. And we will see what we can see. All right. So to begin, though, to begin with our foundation, we actually need to go back to the book of Exodus, okay? So in the book of Exodus, when God is at Sinai, Moses is up on top of the mountaintop, and we're going to be in Exodus chapter 33 first, okay? And so what is happening is that God is meeting with Moses up on top of Mount Sinai. Moses comes down with the Ten Commandments, and he sees the, what's going on with the golden calf, breaks the golden calf, break, not, well, yes, he breaks the Ten Commandments, then he burns burns the golden calf, makes them drink the ashes, people die as a result. And then when we get to Exodus 33, God instructs the nation of Israel to get up and leave, thus freaking everyone out. Because he said, you need to pack up and go, but he did not say if he is going with them or not. And so obviously they are not in a good headspace right now. And so Moses goes into the tent of meeting, the cloud descends, and Moses has a conversation with God. And that is where we're going to begin today. Okay. And in the book of Exodus 33, 12 and 13, this is what it is. Uh, this is what it says. Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up these people. But you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know that in order to find favor in your sight, and consider too that this nation is your people. So when you read it, you kind of get this sensation that, that uh, Moses is a little bit frustrated with God. He's like, pack up and go, but he's like, who are you going to send with us? Please, let me know what your plan is. And then I love the fact that Moses feels like he has to remind God, by the way, these are your people too. Let's not forget that, okay? You know, um, but anyways, but the brilliant thing comes very right after that. And that when God responds to Moses, he gives a singular line, and this is what God says. My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And from this moment forward, then they pack up at Sinai, and then they head destined for the promised land with the assurance that God is going to go with them, 
but then that they are going to, he is going to give, bring them to rest, okay? And the reason why that's important, because for, that's a signal post in the narrative of the beginning of a quest, okay? So when they leave Sinai, because this is what God has said, they leave Sinai now destined for the promised land, just like the Fellowship of the Ring leaving Rivendell. It is a signal to the beginning of a journey, and we find the closing of that journey in Joshua chapter 23, when the very first verse of the chapter is a long time afterward when the Lord had given rest to Israel and all their surrounding enemies and Joshua was old and well advanced in years. It, 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 was, it was begun at Sinai and it, we now are seeing that it is now finished at the very beginning of the chapter. So what do we do next? It, it's done. Well, stay tuned. It's going to get better. Okay, so when we look at the book of Joshua, when we get a quick overview, we are in chapter 23, okay? So in the book of Joshua, you have the entire book here, and it's kind of divided into two sections. There's the, uh, the, the book of Conquest, which is the first 12 chapters, and then after that, you have the book of Apportionments, which is the rest, which is 13 through 24. Okay, so Slade brought us through chapter 21 last week, and now we're in chapter 23, and then we'll be chapter 24 next week. But what we need to know is that this is Joshua's closing discourse for the Israelites. And so that's what we're going to be examining today is his closing discourse. He knows his death is coming up soon, and he is making preparations for that with a final speech, very much in the same way that Moses gave a final speech in Deuteronomy as he himself was preparing for his own death and transition in leadership. Uh, the writers of Joshua did this on purpose, that when you read Joshua, you are supposed to be reminded of Moses. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today, is this final speech um, from Joshua for instructions of the Lamb. And so when we go in Joshua 23, and we go back to uh, verses 2 and 3, the story continues. And so Joshua summoned all of Israel, its elders, its heads, its judges, and officers, and said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years, and you have seen all the Lord has done to all these nations for your sake, and it is, uh, and it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Now, interesting thing. So, so if we are supposed to be reminded of Moses, then we know that Moses handed leadership directly to Joshua. But one of the ways that we are reminded, but yet is different, is now Joshua is now handing leadership down to all the rest of the leaders of Israel. So it's not a singular transition of leadership. It is now, Joshua is now empowering. He's giving agency to, he is preparing, he's handing off authority to all the other leaders in Israel now that they have all been given their piece of promised land to rule and reign over. Okay, and so right now, uh, and because it's narrative, that brings up something we have to cover because if we miss it, it's going to affect how we interpret the rest of the passage. Okay, and because it's a narrative, every narrative has a tension. And what we need to know about Joshua 23 is that the tension switches from a conquest to settlement. So we already know it switches because the very first verse said the mission has been accomplished. Okay, so the conquest of Cana was part of the mission to bring the nation of Israel into the promised land, and now that it is done, well, there's nothing left to do. There's nothing left to conquer. And so the conquest tension within a narrative is a singular unifying task. Everyone on board is behind this one singular goal of we are conquering the promised land. And now that it is done, 
Well, without tension, the story doesn't move forward. There has to be a tension. So it switches from, are we going to, so, so the, the, the tension was, are we going to be able to do it? Are we capable of conquering the promised land? And we find out, oh, yeah, we are, cool. So now the question then switches to, what will we do now that the mission is accomplished? You've spent your career as a man of war, and now you become a man of governance. You've spent your life focused on this one thing. Now that you have it, what are you going to do next? And so the tension switches because the mission has already been the mission has already been accomplished. So that gives us our foundation. That's where we're going to start from. And now we're going to move into our framing of how we're then going to walk through the rest of this passage. And and I love personally, I love a Jewish narrative. I love the Old Testament stories. They are so rich, and there's so many things to see in there. And yet. Also, they are still challenging to read. And so that every time you go through a narrative, you can always see something else, even with the most familiar stories. Uh, and so this has been one of my passions, is just digging into um, how the Jewish narrative uh, tradition, the Jewish literary tradition, we know that, because here's the deal. All scripture is God-breathed, right? Okay, all scripture is God-inspired, right? Okay, so real quick, how cool is it that the Sovereign God over everything chooses to reveal himself to us in a language that we can read and understand. Isn't that amazing? And so when we look at these biblical narratives, God is divinely inspiring what he wants us to know about him using the methods of a tradition, of a literary style of writing. And so that when we read this, we don't say, oh, how clever are the humans? We say, oh my goodness, how clever is God that he would do this in the way that we can understand and be blessed by him, okay? So when we do this, now, now in the biblical narratives, they have a tradition of putting in patterns that are supposed to remind you of what has come before. And Joshua 23 is no different. It still follows this pattern. And that's what I'm going to show you guys today because that's going to be how we frame how we interpret the rest of the passage. You guys tracking with that? Okay, so when we read Joshua 23, what the writers are trying to do is they are trying to remind you of the Garden of Eden. Joshua 23 is written to evoke the Garden of Eden in our minds. Okay, so obviously, so if you take the two major plot structures of the two stories and put them side by side, you know, they kind of pan out in Eden. They were, pla- you know, humanity was placed in the garden to flourish and build. And in here in Joshua 23, we've already seen that they were given rest to flourish and expand. In Eden, they are given a choice between obeying God or becoming wise like God. And in Joshua, we're going to find out that they are given a choice between God or the gods. In Eden, they were tempted to rule by their own wisdom, by our own, our own wisdom. And in Joshua 23, we're going to find out that they are going to be tempted to cling to the gods. And then and finally, in Eden, they, it results in exile of their choices, exile because of their choices. And in Joshua 23, that is also foreshadowed as part of the warning is that they will be exiled from the promised land. Now, this is here. This is all very fun. Oh, how clever is Jordan? And this is all, frankly, this is all circumstantial. And, and so you can look at this and you see comparisons like, okay, cool. It's similar. But there is a verse in Genesis that binds these two together, which, is, which uh, makes it very obvious that's what they're trying to do. 
and that that's what we're going to be looking at next, okay? And that verse is found in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. And so if you guys will turn to there, or if you look up on the screen, what we're going to find that this is the moment that humanity falls, okay? And this is what it says. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Now the pattern, there's a three-step pattern that emerges from this verse that gets repeated throughout the rest of the biblical narratives. And I'm going to teach you guys how to find it for yourself today. Okay? And so this is the three-step pattern that, st that uh, stands out. Saul desired and took. Saul desired and took. That is our three-step pattern. And then using this pattern, we're now going to walk through Joshua 23 so that, we, so that we may be able to see what the Israelites saw who were living the book of Joshua. Now, for us, we have many problems. We're very well aware of them. But one of them is that we are modern Western Christians. Have you guys ever thought that being a modern Western Christian would be a, would be a difficulty? Yeah. It's okay, it, I, I, you know. And so what I mean by that is that because we are growing up in the English language and we're going up with the completed scripture, sometimes it is difficult for us to place ourselves in a way where we can view how the Israelites, how the original audience would have received these words. Uh, and so that was part of my struggle as I was preparing for this, is I had to, uh, once again, there were very many things about being modern that are very helpful uh, in terms of Bible study tools and resources and stuff like that. It's not all bad. But part of my prayer was, God, help me set aside what I already know, that you may show me how they would have heard and seen um, that as well. So this is it. You guys ready? Let's get into the, to the passage proper. And so we're going to begin with C. That's the first step uh, of our pattern here. And you're going to find the word see when you get to verses 4 and 5. Behold, there it is. That's the clue. When you see that, you start to dial in. Oh, I wonder what they're talking about here. Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes, those nations that remain, along with all the nations that I have already cut off from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess the land just as the Lord your God has promised you. Okay? So once again, the passage has already begun with the finished mission of being in the promised land. And so what God is saying through Joshua, what Joshua is saying to the nation of Israel is saying, look at what God has done. Seriously, guys, look around you. You didn't, no one thought you could do it. And you're here because of what God has done. Look at what he has provided. See with your eyes his fulfilled promises. And then not only that, but do you see the other people on the outskirts that are just, you know, so, so we're right here in the promised land and then kind of around the borders, we see other nations. He says, look, you see them out there? God is going to give you their land also. And so that establishes the first step in our pattern of see. And the next one is desire. 
Now this one, once again, because we are modern English speakers, it is not as obvious to us because we do not think the same way they think. Well, let me take that back. There are some the ways we think very similar as we're about to explore. Uh, but this one is a little bit less obvious than, than C, uh, but it is still within there, and I'm going to show you guys um, what I'm talking about. And, and when we look at this, we're going to look at verses 6 through 10 to find the second step of that pattern. And this is what it says. Therefore, be very strong to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left hand, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of their names, of their gods, or swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them. But you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand since it is the Lord your God who fights for you just as he promised you. So once again, Joshua is very heavy to be reminding them of the promises that God has done. And it's for a purpose, as we're about to find out. So this this requires a little bit of explanation as to what is going on here, because the most striking thing that comes out of that is that that Joshua is very serious about the influence of of the neighbors and their gods. In fact, he mentions four different ways that you can mix with the other nations. He says you can mention the names of their gods, you can swear by their gods, you can serve their gods, or you can bow down to their gods. And that word bow down there, a synonym is pray to. So you can go pray to or bow down and you're still on the same track. Okay, four distinct ways of mixing with the other nations that will not be good for you. Okay, and so for us, we need to understand something because when we're reading this, what we're seeing is that God has conquered the promised land. He has pushed out the nations. So why is there a threat of mixing with their gods? Have you guys ever like had a big moving furniture day or something like that uh, where you move like the big armoire or the big entertainment center or a couch and you've kind of picked it up and lifted off where it's been sitting for 10 years and you look, and it's still there, and you're like, well, I guess the couch is staying right here, okay? Or like the picture on the screen, have you guys ever pulled something off the wall, and you're like, oh, it's still there? Or, or, or better yet, we're, we're getting to June now, so how many of you guys have ever put an inflatable pool out in the middle of your yard, or had a trampoline sitting out there for a season or two, and then you remove it, and oh, it's still there? Anyone? Am I alone in this? No, okay, good, good, okay. And, and this, is, this, is a good, this is a good visual reminder for what is going on in the promised land at this time. See, the general uh, wisdom, the, the conventional knowledge about gods and how they worked during this time was that they kind of had this regional stance where they kind of, this realm is, you know, the... Um, when we talk about like realm, we're talking about like geographical locations. So this land is under the rulership of Baal. This land is under the rulership of this god or that god. They kind of had these regional um, deities or kind of patrons and stuff like that. And so even though the Canaanites have been pushed out, the common belief is that the gods were still dwelling because that's where they dwelled. Okay, and we even see this um, in how the Israelites would have understand would have understood what's going on. Because let's not forget, okay, once again, 
us as modern Christians, we are very familiar with the omnipresence of God, that God is everywhere at all times, you're never, you know, that kind of thing. But, but if you remind ourselves of the perspective of the Israelites, they met God where? At Mount Sinai, and then God descended Mount Sinai into the Ark of the Covenant and then marched with them through the Promised Land and the Tabernacle for the past 40 years, all the way through the adventures of Joshua into now finally being settled. And so from the perspective of the Israelites, they were bringing their God into the land just as there was these other gods already dwelling in the land. And so the perception would have been that, and and it seems strange to us to think, but their perception would have been that Yahweh was the new kid on the block, that Yahweh was the new guy, that Yahweh, this was his freshman year of school, and he's surrounded by these other seniors who have been here a lot longer than he has how curious. You see, in this, in, this time, in this date and time, the question of the existence of God, that was not even a question. No one argued. Of course the gods exist. Don't be silly. My goodness, we're people of science. The gods do exist. No, no, no. The question wasn't, do gods exist? The question being set up here is, is one God enough to do all the jobs of the other gods? Is this new upstart Yahweh Does he have what it takes to do what the other gods have been doing seemingly much longer than he has? Let's dwell on that for a second. Let me, let me, uh, this is another good way of kind of picturing it. Um, Anywhere, everywhere from the IT fields um, to mechanical services uh, to engineering and even in healthcare, it is seen as best practice to specialize in certain aspects of your field. It is seen to do that uh, rather than have one person who knows everything there is to know about uh, some subject matter. Now, I know you guys all know these people exist, and that's okay. We know the reality of it. Uh, but even this, this, this concept is even in, in found within the church, too. I am a youth pastor. I specialize in seeing to the spiritual needs of youth. So, so please don't hear me. This is not some sort of critique or some kind of call out. No, it's a bad thing to specialize. No, it's a good thing to specialize. It is wise. It is efficient. It's a good thing. All I'm saying is that we are not the first ones to invent that, because this idea of specialization was something that was applied to the gods of the ancient world as well. So to kind of illustrate this point, what I want to do is I want to go through the top four gods that are mentioned in the Bible, uh, the top two most familiar ones, the top four most familiar gods, Canaanite gods, that we would come across when we read scripture, and we're gonna talk about what they specialized in or what they offered to their patrons. So the first one is Baal. Of course, we stop with the biggest. He's considered the father of all gods, um, and he is also associated with the sun, but he is those, his most important function is he is the thunder god who brings the rain. And so when you are talking about in an agrarian society, what God is very important to have on your good side, the rain God really kind of trumps that all. But here's the deal. He's also associated and depicted as a warrior. So whatever uh, city or whatever that was under threat of invasion, they would then um, make offerings to Baal in order for him to come fight on their behalf and thus protect them. You You guys track with that so far? Let's do another one. Asherah. 
This is Baal's wife, okay? She's associated with the moon, um, and she's the queen of the goddesses. And her specialty, what she does, is she works in the fertility section, okay? She was, she was the divine OGBYN. She was the divine fertility consultant, uh, okay, of that kind of thing. But here's the deal. There's a catch. Once again, we're in an agrarian society. And so what we find, though, is that um, for a family to then grow and have children, you're increasing your labor force. And if you increase your labor force, you increase production. If you increase production, you increase more of what, I don't know what happens next, I'm not a business major. Uh, you sell stuff, right? Okay, so the more, the more stuff you have to sell. So Asherah, she is associated with fertility, but she is also known as the goddess of fortune. And so not only would people go when they're trying to grow a family, but even a small business owner would go to Asherah and say, can you help me grow my business and become prosperous? Can you help me provide for my family? Can you help me have something to leave behind to my children when I am no longer here? Okay, you guys seen the pattern? Let's keep going. Dagon. Uh, the, the, the Philistines are big fans of his um, as well. And his specialty, he's is the god of the harvest, but not just yet. He has an extra specialty in that he is most associated with the god, uh, as the god of the autumn harvest, as in the very last harvest before the winter months, as in when it was most important to get a good crop, the autumn harvest was where you would want that to happen, Okay. And then finally, Molech, probably the most infamous of the Canaanite gods. Um, and he, he is the god of, you know, we actually don't know what he's the god of. Some would say, oh, he's the god of fire. And that seems like a cop out, stuff like that. But no, we, there, is, there is really not much evidence to what he was the god of. In fact, we don't even know his Canaanite name. Molech, that's a Hebrew name. It's a combination of the Hebrew words for king and shame. And so we know for sure that the Israelites did not like him, that they would call him something that reads out to the king of shame or the most shameful of all things. But here's the deal, and this is what's interesting, and this is kind of what convinced me that this was worth our time to look at this. There is, uh, there is evidence, and some scholars would agree, that there is a chance that Molech may not have even been a god at all, but rather a ritual that you would practice for another god. Okay, so you're trying to get through to this god, do the Molech ritual or whatever. But here's the deal, and this is where it gets really unsettling. You guys ready for this? There is evidence, and some scholars would agree to this, that's the reason why you would make offerings to Molech is because you had wronged someone or you had transgressed and you needed forgiveness. Let me phrase that. Let me say that another way. Uh, you would be inclined to make an offering to Molech if you had sinned and you needed atonement. Does that sound familiar? And so this is what I want to do. Very often, and I, and I kind of grew up, and, and, and you know, this is uh, it's very common to view people who make offerings to these gods as a caricature. Oh man, they, they just, you know, they worship the idols because they want to have sex without regret or they want to get drunk and not feel guilty or whatever, some selfish-minded reason and stuff like that. And you know what, that, I wasn't there, but yeah, I'm sure there's people like that that were like that. When we talk about the vast majority of people, their motivations for making offer to these gods 
seem very familiar. And if we're very serious about this and about seeing how they would have seen this, it does get a little unsettling. Folks, the power of the gods is in how good they are at appearing to offer the gifts of God. So if you take God and the gods and you put them next together and you say, what are the reasons people make offerings for them for? You get a very stark list. Community, protection, blessing, growth, provision, even atonement. You see, here's the deal, guys. When we look at desire, what it means to look at and say, gosh, I really want that, or that seems like a really good choice, oftentimes it's easy for us to think of it in terms of, well, they're just being selfish. It's not necessarily being selfish. The people in the ancient times, they were raising families. They were growing businesses. They were trying to do good things in life. They were trying to do best for their families. The people that were off making offerings to the gods, they would have been on the PTA. They, would, they could have been uh, you know, in, in community uh, players. Uh, it's very easy for us to take the idol worshipers and push them off to the side. But I would argue that what Joshua is trying to lay out before the, Israels, before the Israelites as they are about to take ownership and rule over the land, it says, this is what you need to pay attention to. It's not the silly trinkets that they offer. It's because you're making the calculation in your mind that God is not enough to take care of your needs, and so you're going to go seek a specialist and a consultant. It seems awfully practical, does it not? One God, oh, man, well, he's probably really busy, so, and I have some really important needs here, so, um, I know, so he's really busy, so, but I have these guys over here. This is what they do. Like, this is all, this is their specialty, doesn't it seem practical? Doesn't it seem like wisdom to go to, to do this as well? I am in trouble. I need help. It's amazing how practical things become when the pressure is increased on us, is it not? So let's move on to our third step in this pattern, which is take. The moment where temptation is before you and you make the decision, you're going to go for it. And what we find, and we're going to find this in Joshua 11 through 13. This is what it says. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish off this good ground for the Lord your God has given you. Okay, so one of the common things that keeps coming up is Joshua is still reminding them of the promises of God and not just the promises of God, but the fulfilled promises of God because we're still, once again, the chapter began with it's done. There's nothing left to do and he's constantly reminding them of that. Now, this one is, is very, uh, I love this um, and I'm gonna show you why. Okay, so where we get the idea of take is this line right here, um, if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations. So here's the deal. Once again, how did Joshua begin? Not Joshua, the book. Joshua 23 begin with God bringing them to rest. So there was nowhere left to go. There was no journey left to journey. They were there. 
And so by, if they were to be tempted by the other gods and that idea to cling, to turn back and cling, and by the way, that cling there, another synonymous word is hug, okay? So you can say hug the gods and you're still right on track with your interpretation. If you turn back and hug the other gods, this is what's going to happen. I have decided to no longer follow Yahweh. I'm turning back. I'm turning back. You guys know the song, right? Okay, but here's the deal. And there's some more interesting things that are kind of going through here as we go through this. Okay, one of the things I want to point out to you guys is, okay, so God will no longer drive out the nations. Okay, we're tracking with that. That seems pretty obvious. Okay, they shall be a snare and a trap for you. That is animal language. Okay, you don't use snares and traps on humans. That's something you use for animals. If you turn back and cling to the gods, you will then be treated like animals. And then finally here, uh, they shall be a whip to your sides and thorns in your eyes. Now, what's interesting about that is that thorns in your eyes, this is not the first time it shows up. That thorns in your eyes is mentioned in Numbers 33, 55. And uh, wouldn't you know it, it's in the same exact context of don't mess with these people they will be like thorns to your eyes. Now, the question I'm going to put out to you guys is, if Joshua in chapter 23 leads off saying, look at what God has done for you. Look at the provision that he has given to you. Look at his generosity. Are you able to see it if you have thorns in your eyes? Are you, are you able to see it if you have fallen into a snare and you're feeling trapped? So it's not just this, you know, they're not talking about literal thorns in your eyes, but there is this idea, this deeper layer that, man, if you choose this path, you will be unable to see what God has already done for you. And that will lead you down to perish off this good ground. And one last thing I want to point out about this passage here. This good ground. In the Hebrew language, they have a word for earth, like planet earth. It's called Eretz. When they're talking about um, we live here on planet Earth, they would use the word Eretz. Um, uh, in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, they would say, when, in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the Eretz. Okay, track with that? This word here, ground, they don't use, it's not, the word Eretz is not used, but rather the word Adama is used. Okay, this word is used when they're talking about land that you cultivate, land that you plant in, um, land that grows fruit, that kind of thing. And yes, this is the exact same word where we get Adam as in Adam and Eve from, okay? And so for you to perish off this good ground, okay? So let's explore that real quick, okay? So if you guys go back to Genesis, uh, the beginning of Genesis, what was God's job given to humanity in the garden. What's that? The tend to the earth. What's another way of saying that? Yeah, okay, yeah, we'll take care of it. Um, okay, how about be fruitful and multiply? Yeah, you're exactly right, Chuck. Yeah, exactly right. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. So that when God put humanity on this earth within the garden, he says, you guys are going to do great things. You're going to fill the earth. You're going to subdue it. You're going to take care of the garden. And you're going to take care of it in a way that it expands across the Eretz. Okay, you guys tracking with that? 
And so when, when, so when Joshua is saying here that if you choose to follow the other gods, you're going to be ensnared, you're going to be trapped, you're not going to be able to see what God is doing for you, and then you will perish quickly off this good earth, this good ground that you plant and cultivate. Guys, the, the warning is not don't do this out of mere loyalty's sake or don't do this because it's bad. What's, what, what the, the, the earnestness behind this is that if you do this, you will be unable to fulfill God's design for humanity. It is not simply don't do it because it's bad or don't do it because it's selfish or don't do it because I'm God and I'm jealous for all the glory to go to my name. It is far greater than just simple loyalty. See, God put us on this earth with a divine purpose, that we are co-laborers, and that through the goodness of the Garden of Eden, we were to spread that out across. And then through the, the choices of humanity and Adam and Eve, they had to now leave that. And what we're finding out is that God said, the way that I'm going to fix this is I'm going to put my people back in the promised land, and then we're going to try it again. You guys tracking with that there? Because Joshua placed them in. Okay, here's the deal. This is a good little word picture. Okay, just like God parting the waters of creation to bring dry land up in the middle so that people could live and flourish, God steps in the promised land and pushes back the nations to give a spot for the Israelites so they can grow and flourish. And part of his promise is you're going to go further than where you're at right now. You are going to continue to go on than where you're at right now because it's what. I designed you to do. But if you turn back, if you decide that your wisdom leads you somewhere else, then that's the first thing that's going to go, is my purpose for you is the first casualty of your choices. So when we move into the final verses of this passage, um, it kind of moves into kind of what Joshua is kind of recapping everything he said and kind of reaffirming the promises made. But the seed, desire, take pattern, you see how it falls. You see how it applies to Eve when she looked at the fruit and Adam when he was there doing something. I don't know what he was doing. Not paying attention, that's for sure. But that's a different sermon. Anyways, um, but the same way Joshua is saying, this is what's been set before you. Temptation is real you have the ability to choose whether to trust God and what he has done and his fulfilled promises or to continue on because you think you've got an edge in the competition or you just got a hunch. Ah, I think this might be the right one. Every motivation is different. But as we move into the final verses, we see that once again, Joshua is kind of reframing and repeating everything he said. And now I'm about to go the way of all the earth. And you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed. And of all the good things the Lord your God promised concerning you, all have come to pass for you, and not one of them has failed. But just as the good things the Lord your God promised concerning have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until he has destroyed you off this good ground, this good land that the Lord your God has given you. If you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them and anger, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and you shall perish quickly off this good land that he has given you. Now, part of this too is kind of setting it up in chapter 24, God renews the covenant. And so part of this is just kind of setting it up for that. And so pay attention here. Chapter, chapter 23 is going to overflow into 24. So um, we're looking forward 
uh, to that as well. But if we take just chapter 23 and set it apart and we break it down, this is what God is revealing to the Israelites. This is what he wants them to understand through the speeches of Joshua. Okay, number one, and it has been repeated very often in this passage, you are established, the work is finished. That is the beginning statement. And so out of that, you love God and you stay true to Torah. And if you do that, out of that, you will prosper and expand. So a quick note, this is a community prosper and expand, not a personal prosper expand. So let's not get all health and wealthy out there, okay? Very different implications, all right? I just want to make sure. I felt I, we need to be really clear on that. The prosperity and expansion is a community that is the kingdom of heaven, not your personal kingdom. Check it? All right, here we go. And then finally, <laughs> through that, God's plan of redemption is complete. Now, if I'm being honest, as I was preparing for this sermon, this is the part that I got hung up on a lot because I'm sitting here scratching my head. I'm like, no, that, that's Jesus. Jesus does that. That's the completion of, that. that's, what are they talking about? They're, they're, they're jumping ahead to the end. But here's the deal, and, and, and honestly, the more I've studied, I'm like, oh, no, no, I think I get it. So here's the deal. Um, if the Bible ended with Joshua, it didn't go on to Judges, Ruth, and all the rest, then we would walk away from the scriptures thinking the job is done. We will walk away thinking, oh, happily ever after, story closed. Wasn't that a good story, Dad? Yes, it sure was. Okay, but here's the deal. We know that the Bible then continues on to that. All right, so let me, this is one way to kind of help me wrap my mind around this, because once again, we have to do more, because we are modern, we have to do more work in order to wrestle with the truths of God, okay? It's not because we're dumb, it's because we're modern, okay? And that's not a bad thing, but it just means it's something we need to pay attention to. So it's in June, so we recently just celebrated the anniversary of the D-Day landings on June 6th, 1944. And this is a picture here, this is a picture of June 7th. Isn't it nice? Okay, so June 6th, 1944 was seen as a major turning point within the war. As in, ah, we finally we got a beachhead, we're back in Europe, we're making progress again, this is good. We're only going uphill from here, okay? Now here's the deal. The only reason why we know that D-Day was a turning point in the war was because we lived after the war was over, okay? If you read the diaries and the memoirs and the stories from the generals and soldiers on June 7th, the anxiety was still there. At any moment, we could receive a counterattack from the Germans that could send us back into the oceans and back to square one. So no, 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 we're, we're, yes, hooray, we're here now, but we don't know how long that will last. So once again, because we are Christians who live after the completion of Scripture, yes, of course, Jesus is the final solution to, to complete God's plan of redemption. That is not an argument. But from the people who were living the book of Joshua, the Israelites who were being established in the land, the question in their mind was, is Joshua the Messiah? I mean, we're here. Maybe he is the Messiah. I don't know. Let's keep going to find out. Okay, so you guys, that kind of helped me wrap my head around. Does that kind of help you guys be able to wrap your head around that idea, that concept? 
that throughout Scripture they said, oh, God's job is done. And then they get two passages or you know, another chapter, another book, and like, oh, no, never mind. Okay, we're keep going. Until finally, so I am not putting in question, yes, of course, Jesus is the completion of God's redemption. But for the people who are living the Bible, we can be gracious to them, can we not? So when we go back up here, so yes, the idea is that God's plan of redemption, which is to reestablish us back to the job he gave us at creation, that by doing that in the promised land, and if the Israelites stick to it, then there is all. Then, then there's no more need for salvation. There would be no need for the kings. There would be no need for psalms. There would be no need for the prophets, no need for the epistles, no need for the gospels, because we're here. Once again, the chapter began with, it's done. It is finished. But then there is the catch, though. If you choose the other option, and this is what it looks like. Once again, the beginning point is you are still established and the work is finished. But if you make that choice and you turn back and cling to the other nations, then because of that, then God will not hold back the other nations. Then you will be trapped, unable to see the gifts of God, destined you to live a fruitless, frustrated, and unsatisfied life. And then in an effort to fix it, you increase your sacrifices in order to gain some sort of atonement. But because you have given of yourself to some other God, then it just makes the problem repeat itself. There is no satisfaction. There is no release. It is a cycle. And just, I mean, just speaking from my own opinion real, sec, real, real quick, this feels awfully hellish to me, okay? But that's just me. But here's the guy. And, but this is, this, but it's not, this is not like this forever. Yes, it's a vicious cycle. Yes, it will repeat ad nauseum. Unless something steps in to disrupt that cycle. You see, any time, many Christians can find themselves trapped into a cycle of sin, just like everyone else. But what God does offer is he offers these little moments of grace. When he, through a moment of clarity, you can realize, oh my gosh, what's going on? Just if you're kind of walking through life with your head down, stuck in this vicious cycle, then oftentimes God can provide you a window of grace when he allows you to look up and survey the landscape and say, oh, this is not at all what I intended. Or man, this is, this is soul sucking. This is not okay. I don't like this. I want to get out of this. And then from there, that's where repentance comes in. And at any moment when someone realizes the depth of their sin, and no longer desires to dwell in that and reaches out and calls upon God for their salvation, then what he has demonstrated every time is that he comes down and he picks them up and he brings them back to where he always wanted them to be. He doesn't put them in timeout. He doesn't put them in here. Okay, wait, let's see if you're mature enough to handle it yet. Okay, no, he says, you're repenting. Hallelujah, I'm gonna bring you back to where I always wanted you to begin all along, which was established in his rest, established in his peace, established in his presence, and then everything else that we do comes out of that. Folks, rest is not earned. It is given as a gift, as demonstrated in Joshua 23, that God carried them all the way through the promised land and then said, it's done. 
There's nothing. I mean, I want you to say there's still plenty of things to do. There's lots of ruling and reigning. So let's say it like this. There's nothing left to earn. Uh, my wife, um, she's reading a book right now called Deeply Formed Life, written by an amazing pastor named Rich Belotus. And he has this amazing observation that when she shared it to me, I just had to sit for a little bit in quiet because I was going, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. And, 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 and she kind of, it's kind of her fault because I haven't been able to get it on my mind um, as I was preparing for the sermon because I kept seeing, oh, I think. So, okay, so once again, kind of going with that whole theme of what life was like before the fall, okay? What day was man and woman created? Day six, awesome. Okay, good. No arguments there. Okay, now, real quick, what happened the next day? Rest. So for God, he rested from his creation to rule and reign over what he did. And he said it was very good. So from the perspective of humanity, the very first day they experience in God's creation is what? Rest. And then where do they go from there? That is what Joshua 23 is trying to bring our attention to. It is trying to constantly remind us that throughout your life, you are going to be set. What's going to be set before you is you are going to have a chance where you see, desire, and have a chance to take or not take. But it is not because you need to earn something or whatever. It is because God has brought you to rest because it is part of his design for humanity that you flourish and that you do wonderful things in his name. And he is glorified through our work in his name that we do alongside of him. That is the kingdom of heaven. That is what Jesus brings back in. So if we were going to say it like this, the gospel of Joshua 23 is that God has finished the work to restore humanity back to his design, and we begin from there. So if you are a member of the church, and if you call upon Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have been brought back to this place. It's not for you to argue. You might not be able to see it sometimes. But God sees you as bringing you back to the place of rest. And then when you find that rest, you then live out of that. So often the Christian life gets awfully confusing when God is inviting us to be with him. But somehow we find a way to argue, no, I have to do this. Or, no, 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 I need to do this. Or there's none of that. There's something else to God. You know, once again, that whole idea is one God enough to take care of all your problems. <laughs> we like the idea of saying, yes, he is. But is it what we always practice? No, no, we can be honest with that. I, I mean, I'll, I'll speak for myself. I won't want to put that in your room, but I'll speak for myself. I do not have a great track record of trusting God or putting that into practice, what I believe to be the ideal. So out of this, uh, I have three responses from this passage. First one, um, as you read the Bible, be on the lookout for that see, desire, and take pattern, okay? This shows up all throughout the narratives, and its purpose is the same. The purpose is the same, is to remind you of what happened in the garden and then how it's completely played out here in this narrative. So as a quick hint, if you go to 2 Samuel chapter 11, you will see it in the second paragraph, okay? I promise you. 
But a quick note, though, if you're reading out of a Bible um, that tries to be readable, as in uh, uh, English language readable, um, these patterns are not going to stand out. You're going to want a good study Bible that tries to mimic the Hebrew as best as possible. Um, so that's one thing. I, I kind of went through a sample just to check all the translations, and the only ones that it doesn't show up are the ones that are designed to be readable for English speakers. So all that to say, though, like I said, everyone, uh, where are we at? Okay, next one. Next response. Ask a trusted friend if they see signs of you relying on the gods rather than the God. Okay? No, I, I, love the, I love the movie series, God's Not Dead, but you can even make like a second series, The Gods Aren't Dead either. Okay? <laughs> They're still active, and they are still, they know they are defeated. Praise God. Absolutely. They know they're defeated, but they are still working as hard as they can to make such a mess for the time remaining Okay, God is not dead, but neither are the gods. And so that means we must always be aware that we are able to be influenced by them. Like I said, if, if we take total depravity seriously, then we should be aware that we always have a chance to fall to them. Because once again, their power is in how good they are at looking like God. So, and I say trusted friends, spouse, whatever, if there is someone out there who you know they have nothing but the best for you coming out of their heart, that's the person you want to ask. If you're not sure, don't ask that question to someone. It will not go well for you, all right? But someone who you know has your best interest in their heart, ask them that question. I dare you. All right, and the final one, uh, look for ways to... Slow down your pace of life in order to be more aware of the gift of rest. Honestly, when I was preparing this, I thought, oh, yeah, asking people if they see, if I thought the second response would have been the most hard one, but honestly, the third one may perhaps be the hardest one for us. And I'm speaking, once again, speaking for myself. We just got done with soccer season. Oh, my goodness. I am ready for a slowdown in the pace of life, okay? But here's the deal. Joshua 23, it said, look, look at what I have done. Look at the fulfilled promises over and over and over again. In fact, the, the passage ends with, you have no reason to doubt me because every promise I have promised you has come true. Look and see what I have done for you. So look for ways to slow down your life so that you may be more aware of what God is actively doing for you. You have more control over your calendar than you think you do. Some people might be mad, and that's okay. They're not God. <clears throat> Just going to leave it there. All right, so now what's going to happen next is I'm actually going to invite the worship team to come up, and we are going to be singing a song of response from this passage here, because the overwhelming thing is that God is working to bring us back to where he always wanted us to be. And so we're going to sing a marvelous song about Christ and his supremacy and everything about him. But, and as I close in this, uh, and so actually, so after we uh, sing the song, then I'm going to come back up here to the front. I'm going to officially close us in prayer. And then from there, um, I'm going to be up at the front along with any elders, deacons, prayer warriors, staff members, or people who just love people. They're going to come up here to the stage. And from that, that's your cue. If you need someone to hear you today, or if you need to be seen by someone today, 
That is your time to then come up and receive the grace of God through the image bearers of God, through the church, as in, and, and bless us by helping us be able to practice what God wants us to do, and that is to be a blessing to everyone who walks through these doors. So one final thing I want to end with. God has brought the Israelites to rest in the promised land. Today, God has brought us to rest through the finished work of Jesus Christ. May we honor and praise him with our singing.